Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. If you're new to our church, my name is Dave. I serve as the lead pastor here at Harvest. And if you can hear the sound of your teeth clacking together, you can, after service, walk up to Mike one and just say thank you. Earlier this morning, they were in rehearsal for praise team. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and was burning up and asked to turn this place into a refrigerator. Um, I wore shorts because I heard the weather's going to be so warm today. Now I'm tempted to open the doors to warm this place up. If you haven't figured it out by now, every other year we have a congregational retreat at Harvest. And on the off year, we ask our small groups to go out by themselves and have their own smaller retreat. And it's usually a very intimate time of getting to know each other more deeply, of really not just listening to a speaker, but getting to hear from one another. And they're really great experiences. Somehow, four groups conspired to be gone on the same weekend. And so we are at about half our usual number, and I was really excited about that. I was looking forward to a more intimate setting where... Perhaps we would all fit in the middle section. I wouldn't have to do this, but I guess you guys had other plans. Um, I like smaller groups. I, I once preached in front of 3,300 people, and it was the worst preaching experience of my whole life. Not because I was nervous, but because I can't deal with talking to that many people and feel like I'm talking to anybody. And I just really enjoy when we're closer-knit. And I was going to wrap up the series on big faith today, but... I felt this burden growing in my heart for something else, and I just really want to take advantage of our smaller setting today to speak to you from the heart about a burden that really has, uh, I feel, been put here by God. The title of the message, if you could flash up the slide there, is The Main Event. The Main Event. And I hate to use a movie theater image, but in a way, like, this is what church is. In our modern era, everyone sits in a fixed seating and looks forward, and whatever is supposed to happen is happening up here. And often it involves looking at a screen. So the question is if we're all staring at a stage, what's the big show? What's the main event? What's supposed to happen here every Sunday? Our text this morning comes from 2 Chronicles 7 1 through 4. Here's what it says. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their knee, their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord. Some of you might be old enough to remember a 1989 film called The Field of Dreams starring Kevin Costner, who plays a character named Ray Kinsella. Now, I'm not a baseball fan, but this movie almost, almost made me interested in baseball. Almost. 
didn't quite win. But in this film, Costner's character, Ray Kinsella, is a Berkeley-educated novice farmer who buys a farm in Iowa with his wife and uh, all of a sudden hears a vision, a voice that says, you you spoke these iconic words, right? If you build it, you will come. If I heard that in a cornfield, I'd die of terror. What is that supposed to be? If you build it, he will come. And so he understands instinctively what that's about. This is actually a photo of the real field from the real house in Iowa. And so what this crazy man does is he plows under a big portion of his cornfield and he starts to build a baseball diamond out front of his house, stadium lights and all. He goes to an incredible expense personally. I mean, it's not cheap to put up stadium lighting in front of your house. He does everything to create a true major league quality baseball diamond. And then he's left waiting. And all of this, this incredible exercise, I mean, it cost him relationally. Everyone, his neighbors, his brothers, they're like, what is your problem? What are you doing? This doesn't make sense. You're going to lose your farm. And at the end of all of this, you realize the whole exercise has been an exercise of faith. Not everybody who hears voices does what those voices tell them. And so he's done it. It's cost him a great deal. And now comes that strange moment when he's left wondering, so first of all, who exactly is he? And is he going to come? I finished the field. And think about that moment where... You have mixed feelings. You've got this sense of completion, but you've also got this sense of anxiety. Because now my part in this test of faith, I suppose, is done. And the real question is, am I crazy or do I have faith? Here's the truth of it. I think there's a very fine line between insanity and faith. And it's God himself, a real God, who draws the difference between those two things. What if no one ever showed up? What would he say to his neighbors, his brother, his wife? How would he recoup his losses on the farm? The passage we just read this morning tells us about the story of the day when King Solomon, the son of King David, dedicated a newly constructed temple. And he had just such a moment, I think. Solomon's father was the famous King David who had longed for all of his life to build a grand, magnificent temple in honor of God in the city of Jerusalem. A place that would be on earth the dwelling place of Almighty God. But David, being a fallen, sinful man, did something unspeakable. And because of that sin, he was disqualified from being allowed to carry out this great vision And so he understood in in hearing from God that his son and not he would make that dream come to reality. And so Solomon had taken the baton from his father. And he, you know, this is something that plays out in family after family after family. Fathers pass on their unfinished, unmet dreams to their sons. And those sons sometimes resent it and sometimes their lives are energized, defined, by this deep desire to do what my father could not. So he does it. 
the result is the world's first mega temple. <laughs> there were temples, but this is a mega temple. It was built on a paved and walled courtyard, roughly the size of a football field. No expense was spared. In fact, if you read even just the biblical accounts of the amounts, the quantities, the quality of the building materials, by at least one estimate I researched, the building materials alone would have cost an estimated $250 billion in today's money. Because entire rooms were overlaid with thick layers of gold, floor, walls, and ceiling. I think you go blind if someone put electric lights in a room like that. You just you couldn't even see. The whole thing was filled with gold. There was an estimated 150,000 workers and artisans, the most skilled people in the land, and they devoted seven years of their life to constructing this mega temple. In fact, David, before he died, donated the vast bulk of his wealth to this project, and still more money was needed. Finally, after seven years and all of this sacrifice, all of this labor, the project is finished. And they're all standing on the grounds of this new shiny temple. And Solomon, as king, is dedicating this temple to the Lord. Think about what an important historic day that was for him personally and for the people of Israel. And so he gathers everyone Everybody's dressed up. The finest foods are prepared. Everything is ready. And Solomon delivers one of the most beautiful prayers in all of Scripture. In fact, if God ever blesses us with the building of our own, I've committed in my heart that that prayer of dedication would be the basis of a sermon series, the first sermon series I would preach in that building. It is such a beautiful prayer of a spiritual leader's hopes for his people, and for what worshiping God would mean whenever they gather together. And in that prayer, he openly acknowledges what a significant day this was for him personally. He says, My father David had it in his heart to build a temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, You did well to have it in your heart to build a temple for my name. Nevertheless, you are not the one to build this temple. But your son, your own flesh and blood, he is the one who will build the temple for my name. The Lord has kept the promise he made. I have succeeded David, my father, and now I sit on the throne of Israel, just as the Lord promised. And I have built the temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Not many sons get to say something like that when their fathers hand them a mission in life. And for David, this was a, or for Solomon, this was a significant moment for him personally. But even then, surrounded by this magnificent structure, he acknowledges how inadequate any physical building is to serve as the dwelling place of God. And in his prayer, a few verses later, he says this, But will God really dwell on earth with humans? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you how much less this temple I have built. Yet, Lord my God, give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence. What he's saying is this building is greater than any building 
that mankind has ever built. And yet I sense in this moment how pathetic it is to expect the God of the universe to dwell in a physical structure. And yet he says, would you, because of your mercy for us, come and live among us in this place? He goes on to pray a few more things. And then with these potent words, he brings his prayer to an end. And he says, now arise, Lord God, and come to your resting place. You and the ark of your might. May your priests, Lord God, be clothed with salvation. May your faithful people rejoice in your goodness. Lord God, do not reject your anointed one. Remember the great love promised to David, your servant. I want you to pause for a minute and think about this setting. Imagine that God, by some miracle, had granted us a perfect parcel of land, and everybody strained and gave as much as they were able, and after seven years of construction, we had built a magnificent church building. And imagine that we had built a stone altar in the front of that place and heaped a bunch of dead animals on that and said, Now, we're going to pray. And I said to you as your pastor, Folks, God has given us this house. And I'm going to pray that God would show us a sign of his favor, a sign that he has moved into this place by shooting fire down from heaven to consume all those dead carcasses on that altar. And half of you would be like, I would like to see that. That would be quite something. And I want you to imagine what it feels like as that leader to say amen at the end of a prayer like that. Now arise, O Lord, and come down and be with us. And everyone's staring at the altar. And think about that moment. And everything that could possibly go wrong after a prayer like that. What's so amazing then is that we read in the beginning of our text this morning that no sooner had Solomon finished that prayer than fire shot down from heaven. And I love that it says, as soon as he had finished. Because what it shows us is God is not like a young lady playing hard to get coy and going, (laughs) we act like maybe God doesn't want to be with us. We act like we have to coax him to be with us. Like he is trying to stay as far away from us as possible and we have to jump through hoops to make him want to be near us. That's not the truth of it at all. God wants so badly to dwell among his people. The real question is whether we want the same thing. As soon as he had prayed the prayer of dedication and closed it, God didn't hesitate a moment and fire swept down from heaven and consumed all the offerings heaped on the altar. What a powerful moment of affirmation and encouragement that would have been for everybody gathered there. What it meant was that God had chosen to dwell in their midst. What it meant was that he had moved into the house that God had built, that that they had built for God in the midst of their city. They had found the most choice piece of real estate in the center of their city. They had built God the finest home They were waiting to see if he would move in. And as fire shot down from heaven, it was as if God was saying, I'm pleased with what you've done. 
I choose to live here in this house among you. What's interesting is that the glory of God is so often associated with a physical or tangible manifestation of God's presence. When the Bible refers to God's glory filling a place, it's very often not just a subjective feeling in the hearts of people, but at least in the Old Testament times, and sometimes in the beginning of the New Testament era, there were physically visible, discernible manifestations of God being in the room. Now, some of us have experienced moments like that. And I don't know how else to say it, except it's, um, it's really impossible to describe, but if you have been in a physical place where God has filled that room, He is present in a very strong, potent, significant way among His people, it is unmistakable and it is impossible to miss. Some of us have had the amazing privilege of experiencing a setting like that, and if you've ever experienced it, you can't forget it. To be in a physical place where God has inhabited it, has filled it, is one of the most mind-shattering experiences. It will alter you forever. The word glory translates a Hebrew word that also means heavy or weightfulness. And I always thought that was kind of funny, that glory is heaviness. I think most Americans are happy about that, right? But here's the thing. It's not heavy like a burden or an uncomfortable, oppressive feeling. It's heavy like woe. The way 9-11 felt heavy, the way I was scheduled to go watch a movie that afternoon, September 11th. And then at 8.30 in the morning, watching the news reports come in, sitting in the church office with my assistant at the time, the two of us staring in horror, that was heavy. I wouldn't call it glory in the sense of it was awesome, it was great, but it was heavy in the sense that it made everything else that day feel very trivial. I didn't even have to call my friend to cancel our movie date. It was presumed that on a day like today, there is no room for such stupid things. Today is a heavy day. It's a serious day. It is not a day for play. It is not a day for frivolity. We are in the presence of something significant, transcendent. Something truly important has happened in this place. And it makes everything else seem insignificant by comparison. When God's glory fills a place, you cannot miss it. And once you sense it, every lesser thing in your life will suddenly feel insignificant by comparison. If the burdens of your life, though they're heavy, are overwhelming you, are destroying you, are killing you, if you're saying the words like a mantra, I can't anymore, I just can't, the cure for that inability is not more strength, it is the glory of God. Because you miss that glory and you will live all your days in the frivolous world of insignificant things. Never sensing the great, vast, mighty power of the God who gives us his name. The world will be so ordinary. 
But the weight on your heart will be so extraordinary. And what will you do with that? There's a transcendence whenever we experience the presence of God. There's a photographer named, I'm, gonna, I'm sure butcher his name because I don't know how to speak Icelandic, but his name is Sigurdur Stefnitso. And he shot some staggering images of the eruption of, boy, here's a, here's a real butchering of a name. Eyjafjalla Jokut. It was a volcano in Iceland that erupted in 2010. And before I show you the image he captured, which is one of the most stunning photographs I've ever seen, I want you to listen to the description of the glory and presence of God that covered Mount Sinai when Moses went up to speak to God and to receive the Ten Commandments. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings. It was so significant, he forgot his grammar. Thunders and lightnings. And a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people of the camp trembled. Look at this image he shot of the eruption of that volcano. Scientists to this day are not sure why lightning almost always accompanies a volcanic eruption. But if I saw something like that, I couldn't even operate my camera. My jaw would be open. I'm looking at the photo on my computer screen. I'm moved. I can't imagine what this man saw in real life. And if you see something like that, something deep inside of you shakes and you sense that you are witnessing something other, transcendent, so much greater than you. Isn't it interesting for all the storm chaser people that the most destructive, the most awe-inspiring tornadoes there can be, classified as F5 in the Fujita Pearson scale is most commonly referred to as what? The finger of God. As if instinctively people know that when you see something of such vast and transcendent power, you have finally touched something truly other than us. Something that makes every other thing seem so small when you look at it. I would love to see something like that from a safe distance and hear the rumbling of the mountain and just think, is this what Moses saw when he met God on the mountain? Now that's a small glimpse of the feeling that covered the house of God on that first day as they dedicated the temple and the glory of God filled that place. But I want you to imagine with me for just a minute, what if it had gone the other way? What if Solomon had prayed that prayer, a beautiful prayer, an entire chapter of scripture, 40-something verses? And what if at the end of all that, he said, Amen. And everyone's staring. You could hear a pin drop. All eyes are on the altar. And all you hear are the flies buzzing around the dead animals. 
After about five minutes, Solomon kind of looks up and goes, <coughs> Well, this is awkward. Let's try praying a little more. And so he leads in a little more prayer. Ten minutes pass, twenty minutes pass. Everyone looks up again. Hey, let's try this. Let's join hands with our neighbors and cry out to God. If there's anyone who's sinned before coming here, would you just get on your knees and beg God? And after a couple hours of this, don't you think that Solomon would finally go, Folks, I'm sorry. I don't know what went wrong, but it's not going to happen today. I'm going to dismiss you. Please go home. I just kept imagining, what if that happened? <clears throat> would the Bible record it? I think it would. Because a lot of failures are recorded in Scripture. And what if that happened? What do you think the people would feel? What would the mood be in that room on that day? It's thousands and thousands of people waiting for God to show up. And he doesn't. And the silence is deafening. The disappointment is palpable. What would the mood be like in that room that day? As people filed out towards the exit, what would they feel? What would they be saying to one another? Now you have to understand, I'm sure that on a day like that, people who had given seven years of their life, families that have seen their dad maybe for about six hours of all those seven years, Everybody's in a celebrating mood. They can't wait to have dinner parties and catch up with people and talk about, oh yeah, I did the gold leaf on that cluster of grapes in the atrium. Did you see it? I'm sure there were many happy reunions as friends who don't normally see each other would run into each other in the temple courts. I'm sure lots of good things were supposed to happen that day. I'm sure there were many things to celebrate, not least of which is the smell of fresh paint and new lumber. You know the smell of new construction or a new car, the way it evokes something powerful in us, hope, ambition. But when God didn't show up, what would the mood be in that place? Would anyone say on the way out, hey, at least you're still coming for dinner, right? I made a lot of apple pie. Let's, let's just party. Let's forget this didn't even happen. You know, it's... I think that on that day, there was no confusion about what the main event was. And if it hadn't taken place, how many of you buy concert tickets and would be content to leave after the opening act? Yet amazingly to me, in churches all over the world today, perhaps hundreds of of thousands of worshipers will walk out of church buildings with smiles on their faces, not having had any sort of encounter with the living God, having no sense of His glory at all, and yet they will walk out of buildings just like this one, happy, content, saying, that was a pretty good day at church. They will be satisfied with what they had. They will be happy that the pastor didn't put them to sleep what we call verbal horse tranquilizer. Sometimes what some preachers feel like they're doing is, pew, pew, like, I got him. They're out, you know. <clears throat> and they're saying, nah, he was pretty funny today. He kept me awake. That was pretty good. The snacks were outstanding today. And I saw some friends I haven't seen in a while. It was a good day at church. And they will walk out happy 
and likely return the next week for more. And yet, that whole day, they didn't have any sense of encounter with the glory of God. I think that's what church has become for so many all over the world. A wonderful place filled with wonderful people. A good or at best tolerable speech. Good friends, good food, good times. See you next week. Well, we'll do it all over again. And I am confounded to understand how we can do it week after week without the main event. Who is happy that the movie stunk but the popcorn was terrific? Yet that is our hearts, isn't it, so much of the time? People sitting in churches, never meeting God, and yet liking church. How is such a thing possible? How? It's only possible if we radically change what worship means to us. If we radically shift the focus of why we even come. And if we do that, then this can be very satisfying, even if God never, ever shows up. So I want to ask you a question, not in the spirit of rebuke, but a real question, true inquiry. What drew you here this morning? I think there are some people who heard we're only going to be at half strength and said, well, it's not a real Sunday at Harvest. I'm not even going to go. I bet you there are some people who stayed home today because they heard we're going to be half our usual numbers. That's like diet church. I'm not going to go for that. Why did you come today? What is the main event? If you were charged money at the door, what would you need for to happen in order for you to get your money's worth? Aren't you glad we don't charge you admission price? But <laughs> church with an $80 a week cover, all right? How's that? But if you did pay, because once we pay, we suddenly have demands, don't we? Well, that's ridiculous. I paid for this, and this didn't happen. What needs to happen for you to feel like church was worth it today? Because I can tell you, for as long as human beings have gathered in the presence of God, only one thing ever truly mattered, and that is that God would show up and His glory would fill this place. And we who are so sick and tired of earth, so sick and tired of the irreconcilable differences, the conflicts between others, the weakness in my own soul, my inability to beat that nagging habit, to fight the sin and temptation in my heart. I am so sick of earth. And if I can't come to a place and touch glory even once a week, how can I keep going without giving up? If every corner of my world is the muck and mire of fallen, broken people. How can this faith of mine ever make sense? How can I do what I must? How can I ever look at another person and forgive them if I never touch glory? When God himself stops being the center of our focus, something else will inevitably take his place at the center. Researchers Christian Smith and Melinda Denton 
conducted a very extensive research into the spiritual lives of American teenagers. I would think that would be a very short research project, but apparently it was a sweeping, comprehensive study. And in 2005, they published their findings in a book called Soul Searching, The Spiritual Lives of the American Teenager. In it, one of the most significant contributions Smith and Denton made to the conversation of faith in America is a term that they described as moral therapeutic deism. They were describing a distortion of traditional Christianity that appears to be prevalent among American teenagers, and they had no word to describe it, so they made one up. They said, as far as we can see, there are millions of American teenagers going to church on their own volition, happily participating in the life of youth group, And yet, when we really study their spirituality, it's not biblical Christianity we see most commonly. It is something we can't even have. They haven't come up with a word, and they call the word moral therapeutic deism. I know that sounds really like the kind of unexciting word that researchers would come up with, but it's very, very intentional. Moral because for these kids, what matters more than anything is being good people. That's all that matters. There's no gospel of grace. There's no repentance for sin. There is just, I want to be a good person, and I only like people who are good people. It's therapeutic because there's no true redemption from above. There's just the improvement of my well-being. I need help. I need improvement. I need more well-being. I need guidance. Someone help me. They're coming to the faith primarily to get something out of it not to give something to anyone else. And it's deism because there is no Jesus, there is no personal God, no personal Savior, there is just this vague notion of a supreme being. The man upstairs, the big guy, the head honcho. What they described when they studied the spiritual lives of the American teenagers is that this is what passes for Christianity in the vast majority of teenage America. The reason that that book, which was originally, initially, a very small niche market reading, caught fire, was because pastor after pastor, scholar after scholar, began to realize that this term represents the whole of American Christianity. Here's what they had to say about it in their book. Moral therapeutic deism is about providing therapeutic benefits to its adherents. This is not a religion of repentance from sin, of keeping the Sabbath, of living as a servant of a sovereign divine, of steadfastly saying one's prayers, of faithfully observing high holy days, of building character through suffering, of basking in God's love and grace, of spending oneself in gratitude and love for the cause of social justice. Rather, what appears to be the actual dominant religion is centrally about feeling good, happy, secure, at peace. It is about attaining subjective well-being. This is what must inevitably take the place of Christianity when a longing for God is replaced by a longing for a better life. 
if we are not drawn to His house to touch His glory, there is no other course for our faith to take but this. That we will show up in this place hoping that being here among these people with access to these resources will make my life better. Many people have come seeking advice hoping from me, hoping that I would lend a voice of wisdom and practical help in a situation in which they're really at their wit's end. And I appreciate that. I understand where it's coming from. But I wish more people would ask me not for advice, but simply to say, help me see God in this. I don't need to know how to make a better move. I need to see God because I've lost His glory. And all I see is the garbage. And I feel so helpless and powerless I've lost my appetite for anything more transcendent. Are you with me? It is what is most missing from the landscape of faith in our country. Let me start wrapping up here by looking at verse 3. By the way, moral theological therapeutic deism is referred to as MTD, which sounds like it's a morally transmitted disease or something, right? MTD. Here's the cure for an MTD. The cure for an MTD is the presence of God. The experience of His real glory among human beings. There is no greater cure for a dead faith than a real God. It says that when all the people of Israel saw that fire shoot down from the sky and consume the offerings... Their immediate response was to fall on their faces and worship God in gratitude and joy. They saw that fire from heaven not as divine judgment, but as validation, as a sign of encouragement and steadfast love that would last forever. I think part of the reason no one had to tell them what to do, it wasn't like the the praise leader said, this would be a good time for everyone to fall on their faces and worship. No one needed to say a word. The glory came and the people fell. You know, a lot of people lampoon the charismatic movement when they see people just falling all over the place. But I've been in settings like that and it's really amazing to watch when God's presence rolls through a place no one has to tell you what to do. It just happens. It just happens. In a comedy show or variety show, the light, the applause, applause light has to light. So the studio audience knows now is a good time to clap. In Soldier Field, when the Bears score a touchdown once every six months, no one has to tell the crowd to cheer. It's just what comes out of you. I think the deadness of worship is because we have nothing to worship. But when God appears, worship is irrepressible. It's the only possible sane reaction to a real God showing up in a place filled with human beings. One of the reasons their response was so immediate is that this wasn't the first time in Israel's history that fire had shot down from heaven and the glory of God descended among his people. 
At several key points in their history, God had done exactly the same thing and had become part of their folklore. The stories of this God of miracles that their fathers and forefathers had handed down to them. A God who seemed so powerful once upon a time, but where is He today? They believed the stories, but they didn't believe the stories were relevant for this day, for their lives. And when they saw the fire, and let me tell you, I'm convinced at least half that room, if not more, were seriously skeptical that anything was going to happen. Wouldn't you be? Don't just make believe that because they were ancient people, everyone was gullible and everyone had unshakable faith. It'd be the same as today. If I come to your hospital bed and pray for your illness to be lifted, half of you will long to believe and half of you inside of you will be doubting and wondering, is this even possible? But when they saw that fire, they knew what it meant. Once in the life of Moses, it had happened before. Fire came down, consumed the offering on the altar, and the glory of God fell among his people. And the stories were told of that day because it was so significant to everyone who was there to experience it. Much more recently, the life of Solomon's father David, when he built a small altar on a plot of land he had purchased because he longed to worship God and he put a sacrifice on that altar and he prayed to God and fire fell down and the glory of God filled that place. And David told his son dozens of times that story because it was such a significant moment in the formation of his faith and his relationship with God. The reason the people fell to their faces to worship was because they understood what that event meant. It meant that God was not dead. He wasn't far away. He wasn't a story or some idea. He was now God among them. He had chosen to live in the house they built for him in the center of their city. The God of their fathers, the God of stories of miracles was now their God and he showed up. Can I ask you, is that missing in your life? Is it hard for you to speak of your faith as anything other than tradition and ideas and moral codes and guidelines? Even as you're lecturing your children about what God wants from us, do you ever feel a numbness in your heart, an inability to do it yourself? Longing for something to make you feel alive so that faith and belief doesn't have to be such a strain. Why must I expend so much effort to believe God? We have to try to believe God when we don't have any sort of encounter with God. And so our main prayer must be, the desire of our hearts should be, God, as I put on these clothes and drive to this high school, show me your glory. Show up in that place. I can't bear another Sunday of chit-chat with friends and of good snacks and lots of smiles and just to go home happy just to do it again. I can't do it anymore. If I don't see your glory, 
I cannot keep up the charade any longer. I have to see it. Or else all I'll see are the people all around me who keep disappointing me. The hurtful words, the unforgiveness, the inability to change, the empty promises. And I'm going to die inside if I don't see your glory. Worship will die in us if we don't have an encounter with God. There's no way to keep worshiping a God that I don't see. But if we cry out to him, and if he fills this place with glory and you feel it, you will not be able to stop yourself from worshiping. And it won't matter how many or how few are in the house. It won't matter what somebody next to you just said. When you see God, everything else will seem so small, so insignificant by comparison. I wanted to speak this message this morning in particular when we are a much smaller group to remind us of something important. Because there's something about a diminished size, a smaller crowd, that feels different, somehow less. Today is distracting for some because the room is so much emptier. The volume of singing is so much quieter. In fact, I told the fellow pastor, we have four small groups out on retreat. It's about 100 people are going to be missing. And he laughingly said, if that were our church, we couldn't have church. That'd be the whole thing. But then he looked at me and goes, aren't you depressed? You're just sitting there laboring, working on a sermon. Aren't you kind of ticked off a little depressed that only half the number are going to hear you? And that really caught me by surprise. I was kind of like, that's a weird question. It hadn't even crossed my mind until he said it. Then I was getting a little ticked off. Like, hey. But I don't remember ever taking Jeannie out to dinner and complaining because the restaurant wasn't more crowded. I'm only taking one person out to dinner that night. And if she shows up, I'm good. And I got to wonder who we are here to see. If I'm here to see God, there's a good chance I'll see him. If I'm here for anyone or anything else, that is all I will see. And seeing it won't be as great, as heartwarming, as life-giving as we expect. I think in the year ahead, we're going to experience some significant changes as a church. It's very possible that God may call us to pursue a physical structure of our own, an earthly home for this spiritual family. And maybe, like the Israelites, we will sacrifice greatly. We will labor diligently. We'll pour ourselves out to make a dwelling place for God among us. And maybe one day, I will have the privilege of dedicating a new home for this family. 
And we'll smell the fresh paint, the new carpet. But even as we experience changes like that, the one thing I pray will never change is that God will give us only one purpose at the center of our coming together. That that will never change. That the reason we come together as a church will always be first and above all else to meet and to experience, to encounter the living God, to see His glory and to worship Him as a God that we can see. I pray that we will never find ourselves coming here for anything or anyone else. And I want to tell you that if you come to church and you don't meet God, don't get mad at me. But at least have the decency to go home disappointed. Don't call it a good day at church if you didn't meet God. Say, God, I want more than that. I must have more than that. I long for more than that. I will wake up early next Sunday and cry out to you in the morning because I cannot take too many more days like that. I want to see your glory so that I can tell my children, this God we know is not just an idea. He is not far away. He is not dead. I have seen him. I have felt his presence. And I give him to you because I know this God. I hope that will always be the central focus of our hearts. I invite you to just bow your heads with me and let's pray together. I don't want to belittle or demean the many good things that happen on a Sunday here at Harvest. Many people work very hard so that the whole experience would be really, really good for us. But every person laboring here ultimately labors for one purpose, and that is that whatever it is that we have done, it will lead to people encountering God. If it's been a long time or even never since you experienced the tangible presence of God in your life, real glory, something that makes you stand in awe and the rest of your life, heavy as it is, just melt into insignificance. If it's been a long time since you felt that, beg God now to give it to you. Because if He does the burdens, the bitterness, the anger in your heart will melt. The unforgiveness will melt. The helplessness will melt. The pain will melt. Only God can do those things for you. No one else can. We will try and we will fail, but God will do it. And He is the one we need. So let's ask Him to show us that glory to give us that encounter. Hearts are yearning. Let's ask Him for it and trust Him to answer. Let's just pray together. Father God,
We long for your glory to fill this place. And Lord, you have told us that you no longer live in temples, but that we ourselves are your temple, that your glory cannot just come to a building one day a week, but your glory can fill our lives. How we long for that. How we desperately need that. We cannot pretend any longer. We are so tired of pretending to love a God we haven't seen in years. So show us your glory. God, I pray for those who have never really known you never sensed you are anything more than an idea, a tradition, or a story. Take their breath away. Show them what they've never seen, never experienced. Open the eyes of their hearts so they will understand. Give them a reason to keep coming. pray for those of us for whom it has been a very long time since we stood in a place of glory and felt the weight of your transcendence we confess that the weight of the world has always felt heavier than the weight of your glory will you come and change that show up and those ser- those services ending will remind us that we are your dwelling place now answer this prayer today come and fill our lives with your presence show us your glory surprise us change us we ask this in faith Come now, Lord, and be very faithful to your people. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.